custody were the Romans, who are the occupying nation of Palestine. And from that point forward to the end of this book of Luke's sequel, the Acts of the Apostles, Paul remains in custody. We are in Acts 25, where he again is in custody down in Caesarea, which is a city by the sea. And there it is also the seat of government where the present procurator, procurator, depending on how you say it, the replacement of Pilate, man's name is Festus, is now governing over this arena, this region. And he is also visited by King Agrippa II, who has been given authority by the Roman emperor over the Syrian region of that Palestinian area. And King Agrippa comes and visits Festus in Caesarea. Now, King Agrippa II, his great-grandfather was Herod the Great, the one who uh, was on the throne when Jesus was born. Well, this King Agrippa II grew up in the courts of the emperor in Rome. He is an aristocracy. He very well educated, very much beloved by the elites of Rome, and installed and pampered in this position as king. And he comes on the scene with his sister, Bernice. Historians tell us, both Christian and non-Christian, that King Agrippa's relationship with his sister was far less than noble, and he treated her like a wife. That's what we are coming to today. Let us pray and then read. Gracious God and Father, we thank you, we praise you, that you are merciful and kind to hear our petitions. And so we come boldly and ask you upon the occasion of your word being publicly read and preached that you would help us, that your Holy Spirit would indeed, like a good plowman, break up the fallow ground of our hearts, making our hearts good and ready to receive the good seed of your word. And we pray that that seed would take root in us and bring forth a harvest of righteousness, 30, 60, 100-fold. Lord, we pray that we would recognize your authority here in your word and that we would be indeed enlightened, that we would see things rightly, that our cloudy vision would clear by faith and we would understand the way the world really is and who man really is and who we are and who you are, and what we owe to you, and what you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, help us now, we pray. In his name, amen. Acts 25, verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. 
When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left, by pr- left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came to gather here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned, me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This is God's word. Beloved, as you can imagine, I have thought uh, more than a little about how to preach Acts 25. I think it does not lend itself easily to preaching, but I certainly think it must be preached. I would give my life to prove so. Uh, 
So what I decided to do this morning is to arrange the message on the whole chapter around three lessons. Three lessons. The first is a lesson concerning the closing of Jerusalem. In other words, the fall of Israel, the hardening of the Jews. The second is a lesson on the importance of maintaining and defending your good name. And the third, a lesson about the primacy of bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ in the world. So let's begin with the closing of Jerusalem. Luke, the author of Acts, puts this lesson, the closing of Jerusalem, on display quite vividly by setting before us a great contrast in this chapter. A contrast between the representatives of Jerusalem and the representatives of Rome. The representatives of Jerusalem, they want to silence Paul. In fact, killing him is their ideal strategy for silence. We see this in verse 3. They would very much like Festus, the new governor, to have Paul brought in chains from Caesarea up the mountain to Jerusalem so they could ambush and kill him as he is escorted into the city. This goes back to a plot that they hatched back in chapter 23, verse 12, when 40 men decided they wouldn't eat a thing until they had killed Paul. Well, this is now two years later. I suspect they've had something to eat. But they have not, they have not been satiated in their bloodlust. They still want this man dead. Now, this is contrasted significantly in the chapter with the reaction of Festus and King Agrippa II. Now, we are not to regard Festus and Agrippa as personal believers in Jesus Christ, but we are to regard them as representatives of Rome's authority who, under the providential hand of God, open doors for the gospel, which the Jews want closed. Now, how is that for irony? The people with the law, the covenants, the people with the Messiah according to the flesh, they want doors closed so that the grand and glorious salvation of Jesus Christ cannot be mentioned. And the Romans, who are outside of the commonwealth of Israel, who are strangers to the covenants of promise, the Romans are opening the doors for the gospel to run up to the great city of Rome itself. Now, this is contrasted significantly with the reaction of Festus and King Agrippa II. Look at it again. We find in verse 22 that Agrippa says to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Not only that, Festus, the new governor, has said more than once that he finds nothing in Paul deserving of death. Verse 25, he has done nothing deserving condemnation. And then at the very end of the chapter, Festus, in his great speech in the hall, says, I don't even have charges to write down for the man. The Lord is testifying to his church not only the excellency and innocency of his apostle, which we should all expect from the servants of Jesus Christ, some kind of excellency and certainly innocency, but the Lord is also testifying that he has his thumb, the living God, has his thumb on the scale 
to bring the announcement of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, into the very halls of power that you would think it, it would not be welcome. And the place you think it would be welcome in Jerusalem, they are full of murder in the heart. Luke wants us to see what is happening here. The Jews are shouting, Festus says, that Paul ought not to live any longer. Verse 24. Just like the Jews shouted to Pilate 25 years earlier about Jesus. Crucify him. Crucify him. But what are the Romans doing? The Romans are protecting Paul. They are giving him opportunities to speak of Christ, and they are safely providing passage for Paul to Rome to defend himself before Caesar, the emperor, who is Nero at the time. Remember, our Lord Jesus Christ stood beside Paul's bedside while in prison back in Acts 23.11, and in the middle of the night, Jesus woke Paul up and said, you must testify about me in Rome. This is coming to pass by the Lord of the nations. Now, the significance of all this is that it is exactly what our Lord Jesus foretold. Shortly before his own arrest, Jesus told the parable of the vineyard, sometimes called the parable of the tenants. Do you know this parable? The master of a great house planted a beautiful vineyard and leased it out to tenants to run it and to make it fruitful. But every time the master sent his servants to gather fruit from his vineyard, the tenants would beat and stone and kill the master's servants. Finally, the master sent his own son. Surely they will respect my son, he thought. But seeing the son, the tenants said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And so they did. And by this, Jesus foretold his own death at the hands of his own people. This is in Matthew chapter 21. And our Lord also said in that teaching, a servant is not greater than his master. Paul is experiencing that truth in his own life that he too must go the way of all suffering. He must go the way of all righteousness to be persecuted and thrust out of the world and have a death sentence upon his shoulders, but not by the enemies of Israel, but by the leaders of Israel. Well, it was then, after that parable, Jesus spoke these words about the Jews. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That's Matthew 21, verse 42. The Jews lost possession of the kingdom of God. They rejected Christ, but God established Christ through their rejection and murder of him. God raised Christ from death to glory and enthroned Christ as the king of salvation for both the Jews and the Gentiles, the whole world. But in doing so, God took the kingdom out of the hands of national Israel. The new people of God would not be 
natural, national, nor organized by ceremonial prerequisites. The new people of God would be spiritual, international, and organized by faith in Jesus Christ and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The natural and national people of God had become fruitless, murderous, ruthless, lawless, loveless. And Jesus took the kingdom from them. He said, you will no longer be the stewards on the earth of my salvation. It is going to another people who will produce the fruits of this salvation, who will produce the fruits of true saving faith. And who are those people? Well, listen to what Paul says in Romans 2.26. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now, Paul has just described a godly Gentile. An uncircumcised man who keeps the precepts of the law is a Gentile who is producing the fruits of the kingdom of God, the fruits of salvation. His uncircumcision is to be regarded as circumcision, Paul says. He is more a Jew. He is more a Jew than any circumcised man of natural, national Israel who is fruitless, murderous, and rejects Christ, even if he is the high priest. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Paul says in the next breath, Romans 2.28. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This means... This means, beloved, the Israel of God is not disappearing from the earth. It rather has found its true life, the Israel of God. It has found its true power, the Israel of God. It has found its true heritage, the Israel of God, not in Jerusalem, but in the crucified and risen Christ. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, Heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3.29. Those once strangers to the covenants of promise are now members of the household of God, living stones, a holy temple of the Lord. But what of the old Jerusalem? The Jerusalem that's full of murderers. What of the old Jerusalem? The national, natural Jerusalem. Beloved, it has fallen, and you are seeing it reach the end of its death spiral in Acts 25. What they want to do is kill the apostle of Christ. They want to cut out his tongue by piercing his heart. They want Christ not spoken of. They are fulfilling Christ's prophecy over them. Just before his crucifixion, at the hands of his own people, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. And then a couple of verses later, Matthew 24, 2, Jesus finds that his disciples are enamored with the largeness of the stones of the temple. And Jesus says, these will all be torn down. And he's predicting the fall of the city in 70 AD. In Acts 25, we are 10 years away from that fall. 10 years away from the complete destruction of the city of Jerusalem. The Roman general Titus, under the orders of his father, Emperor Vespasian, will come and decimate Jerusalem and not leave a brick upon a brick and burn the mortar between them. This is what the Lord thinks of a national, natural people who are not united to his redeeming son. So it is tempting. It is tempting to think Jerusalem falling prey to this great trouble and animosity towards the gospel is a problem to be solved by changing the gospel. It is tempting to think that the church should solve this problem of Jerusalem's hardness any way we can so that we can keep Jerusalem. Paul spoke of this temptation in Romans 9, 6. He said, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What Paul's getting at is that he knows that there are people, he has heard them, who think that, well, the word of God must have failed because the Jews haven't even received their own Messiah. And the temptation is to change the gospel so they will. Peter was afflicted by this temptation for a moment. He stopped eating lunch with Gentiles and only ate with Jews, and he was undergoing this reversion back to Judaism for a moment. And Paul had to rebuke him. He had to throw cold water on him, ice bucket challenge moment, and said, Peter, you're out of your mind. You're not keeping in step with the gospel. Much of the book of Hebrews is about this temptation, returning to an earthly glory of a natural and national Jerusalem. The apostles do not need to repackage the Christian, the Christian message in a way that keeps the leaders of Jerusalem interested. The goal is not to keep Jerusalem at all costs, as if keeping an earthly Jerusalem is the ultimate aim of the apostles or of Christ. A Jerusalem, beloved, that does not come to Christ is not a Jerusalem that even God wants to keep. A temple without the Spirit is nothing but another pagan temple among the nations of the earth being used for idolatry. Who would be the God worshipped at a temple in Jerusalem where Jesus Christ is rejected? Whatever God that would be, it would not be the eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it would be a den of idolaters. This is a lesson we see Paul giving us throughout his teaching ministry and all of his letters. His most pointed words, most fierce words, if you will, about Jerusalem and Israel, national, natural Israel, are found in 2 Thessalonians 2. You might want to read those even later today. Paul knows 
Paul knows and every Christian should know that the Christian gospel is not an innovation that somehow was superimposed upon Old Testament religion. The Christian gospel is the fulfillment of Old Testament religion, not innovation. And as Paul says in Romans 9, 6, even so, not all Israel belong to Israel. God never claimed that everyone in Israel were his people. And then when you find some, therefore, rejecting Christ, of course they do, because they do not belong to true Israel. So that's really our first lesson, to see what is happening to Jerusalem and national and natural Israel as we draw near to 70 AD in Acts chapter 25. I grant you that that is perhaps a little bit of a complicated lesson if you haven't thought much about those things, but it's good for us to think about these things. It'll help us understand the book of Hebrews. Now, lesson two. Lesson two, perhaps a bit more accessible. This is a lesson on the importance of maintaining and defending your good name. Notice twice in the reading that Paul has spoken in his own defense. First in verse 8, he says, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Then in verse 10, Paul says, To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well, he's speaking to Festus, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Here Paul shows the whole church of Jesus Christ that it is our duty to make our innocence known and even use the courts and political order to do it. After all, are not the courts and political order from God? Absolutely. Scripture says political authorities are God's servants for our benefit. Romans 13.4. They are not servants of the devil, these political authorities. It doesn't mean every man in a position of political authority is a good man, but the office is from God. They are God's servants to praise those who do good and punish those who do evil, 1 Peter 2.13. We should seek the help of the political order when we are falsely charged, especially when those false charges bring reproach on the name of Jesus Christ. Paul does not practice some kind of superstitious hyper-spirituality where he goes quiet, sings hymns, and lets his accusers do to him whatever they want to do to him. He doesn't take a vow of silence in this prison. No, he defends his innocence, and he takes up every lawful advantage he can to advance his innocence. Did you notice how Festus offered Paul the option of being sent to Jerusalem in verse 9? Now, that's certainly an offer to turn down, if you know what Paul knows. Festus should not have made that offer because Paul is a Roman citizen. His citizenship guarantees him a ruling 
from Caesar's tribunal. So it is Paul in this case, not Festus, who presses for proper legal procedure in verse 10. He says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. That's Paul's restrained way of saying, Festus, what are you thinking? You can't turn me over to those people in Jerusalem. You are sitting in Caesar's chair. You owe me a trial or at least owe me an appeal up to Rome. Paul has put both of his hands on his political rights, not just one pinky. So should we. Which means godliness and faith are not opposed to using all the advantages we have to promote our innocence. Paul has even appealed to Caesar, which is Paul asking an unbelieving magistrate to review him under the law. We should regard none of this as worldliness, beloved. This is the right kind of worldliness, remembering as Christians that the whole world belongs to us. Everything belongs to the church, Paul says to the Corinthians. Everything, every politician, every border, every governor, every entertainer, every author, all of them belong to the church to dispose of for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we should remember, in order to make our innocence known, we must have maintained our innocence. Especially, I'm referring to innocence in civic law and political order. It is our duty to maintain our, our innocence. Why be careful, like Paul, to maintain our innocence before civil law? So we have a good testimony among all men like Demetrius has. Third John 1.12. That's how he is spoken of. So we are well spoken of among our neighbors, like Cornelius was, Acts 10.22. This is why every Christian should be zealous to maintain and promote their innocence, so that we, as we name Christ as our God and Savior, we are to shine as lights in the world. Philippians 2.15, blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. As Peter says, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, 1 Peter 3.16. But then Peter adds in the next chapter, chapter 4, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. If you are guilty of being a rabble-rouser, a conspirator, a troubler of your nation, of your city, if you are guilty of that, you have prioritized something else than Jesus Christ. You have prioritized some earthly thing in a world that is passing away. What an absurd priority that would be to put that above an eternal kingdom and its king and his great and gracious name. So it is our duty to, yes, promote and maintain and defend our good name, but it's our duty to have a good name. This is a very simple reason to not be a criminal. 
to not steal even a can of soda, to be innocent before the law. And beloved, what if you are guilty? Well, in one great sense, we are all guilty and we all sin. And so we should confess our great need of a Savior. And we should confess our great joy in having found a Savior for sinners. And you already did that today. Isn't it wonderful? The pastor tricked you and he got you to confess your sins this morning publicly before other people, some who don't even know you. My point is that in our public liturgy, we, we tell the truth about ourselves. Because in, a, in an important sense, we're very guilty. Why make our guilt worse by denying that we're sinners? We will soon be denying that there's a Savior. But what if we are guilty before the civil laws? Well, in that case, we should do as Paul does in verse 11. Quote, If I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. The Christian accepts the consequences of their crimes and does not seek to avoid the consequences. Why? Because even that is an opportunity to boast in Christ, to show that we do not need to run or lie if we have Christ. He who has removed our eternal penalties, he will order our earthly penalties in such a way that makes it best for us to make him known to others, even if we are incarcerated for true guilt before the law. Now, this then brings us to the third lesson, the final lesson today, which is a lesson about the primacy of bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. This, I have to confess, is perhaps my favorite lesson from Acts 25. You may have noticed that Acts 25, in many ways, seems very detached from the personal experiences of our lives. All the things which most easily capture our attention, all the things which cause us anxiety in our souls, all the things which bring doubt into our minds and and weakness upon our wills, all those things are absent from Acts 25. It seems there is nothing in Acts 25 that helps us in the way the Psalms help us, or the way Romans 7 helps us, or the way 1 Corinthians 13 helps us, or the way many other more practical passages of Scripture help us. Oddly, not even Paul, not even Paul himself, a prisoner hunted by a conspiracy of 40 Jewish assassins, who want to kill him. Hungry assassins, yes. I grant that. But not even Paul, who learned about this conspiracy from his sister's son, not even Paul's interior life is recorded in Acts 25. It's not even recorded in Acts 22 through 28, the chapters in which he's incarcerated. We don't get to hear Paul dealing with his fears We don't get to hear Paul dealing with his temptations. We don't get to hear a Christian under great pressure bring and keep his soul in the peace and the stability of Jesus Christ. We don't get to hear that in these passages. It's, of of course, many other places 
in Scripture, but not here. Acts 25 is very detached from our ordinary street-level Christian lives. But this, my beloved, is the point. This is the point. In Acts 25, 22 through 28, really, we are reminded that something bigger is going on than the small ups and downs of our personal and private lives. And that something bigger is what ought to regulate our lives and regulate all the small ups and downs. This something bigger is what ought to be the backbone of all of those smaller realities. This something bigger ought to create a true north for all that runs through our private lives. And what is it? What is the something bigger? It is the primacy of bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Think of it this way. What should all the Christians whom Paul has taught, we've met them in the book of Acts, whom Paul has visited, prayed with, ate meals with, we have met them all. Lydia, we have met all of these people. What should all these Christian casts that we have met in the book of Acts, what should they all be thinking about while Paul is undergoing his five trials while a prisoner of the Roman government? They should all be rejoicing and praying that Paul would be a faithful witness to the great salvation of sinners in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us what this is about. He gets to Rome eventually, right? And he spends two years in house arrest in Rome, shackled to a guard. He spends two years and he writes several letters that are now in your New Testament. From Rome, he writes Ephesians. From Rome, he writes Philippians. From Rome, he writes Colossians. And he writes Philemon. And so sitting in that room under arrest in Rome, he writes this. Listen to this. Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is saying that the primacy of bearing witness to Christ is the big something for all the lives of us Christians. This does not mean that we are to be ashamed of all the little somethings that come with living for Christ. And this does not mean we are to ignore all the little somethings that come in living for Christ. But it does mean that all those little somethings actually find their place and purpose and use in the big something. The big story of my Christian life is not that one of my children is an unbeliever. The big story of my Christian life is not that I need to become a nicer spouse. The big story of my Christian life is not even my struggle with sin. Those are all true and little stories of my Christian life, but they are not the big story. The big story is how all of those things, as real as they are, are bound 
by my living God and Savior into a band, into a cable, into a rope that allows my life to strive to rest in Jesus Christ and proclaim that rest to others. To proclaim that shelter, that refuge that is Jesus Christ to others struggling in a world of sin, touched by a curse of death. Let me try to put this in another way. Now, I said something to somebody just the other day that got me thinking about something, and then that I went down a rabbit hole, so to speak, of information and knowledge. I said to somebody, there's a pumpkin growing in our backyard. And that somebody said, oh, well, maybe a bird dropped a seed. Hmm, I thought, well, that'd be a pretty accurate bird because it's right next to our garden. But, but it made me look up birds and seeds. And I found out that there is a book published in 1830 that's 750 pages. And the title of this book by Mr. H.N. Ridley is The Dispersal of Plants Throughout the World. The Dispersal of Plants Throughout the World. 750 pages. And would you know, there's a section in this book that's 131 pages long. A section 131 pages long. And you know what that section is titled? Dispersal by Birds. And he covers everything that can be covered, I think, about birds dispersing plant life around the world and how certain species of plants got to Australia, and how this, he talks about how hawks tear apart sparrows and drop seeds that way. He talked about how mud on the feet of ducks carries seeds that way. He talks about how a lot of seed is brought to a place through the ordinary course of bird digestion. And he talks about 50 other ways that you've never thought about but are documented. The important point isn't how the seeds got carried by a bird. Dirty feet, hungry hawks, those are various small things. None of them are completely insignificant. You could argue each one is important, but listen, the big story, the big story is that the the Lord is dispersing plant life around the earth for the good of man and beast through these many small ways. But the big story is the dispersal of life and the fruit and seeds of life, overruled by the one who feeds the sparrows. Beloved, this is like what you're finding happening in Acts 25 and in the whole prison narrative of Paul. There are all these other lives being lived that Paul has brought into the kingdom through preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, in Colossae, in Miletus, in Cyprus, and they're all having different stories that they're working out. But the big story is that everybody is coming together in the public assembly of worship especially and bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. The closest that we all come together to a public trial of our faith is the public assembly of worship each Lord's Day. It's where, we, it's where the church gets the true attention of the world. And they see us in our buildings, 
and they know there is something being said there, something being believed there, someone being praised there. And we come here because we are living out all these little stories that we need to set at the feet of Jesus Christ. And we, in doing so, we give testimony that he is the true sucker of our soul. He is the true savior of our sins. He is the true king of our past and our future. Acts 25 is barren of the small stuff so that we would not regulate the small stuff by the small stuff, but that we would order it all by the big stuff. The most wonderful thing that's happening in any of your lives is that the Lord is giving you enough pressures, enough heat, enough sufferings, so that you would desire to speak to your soul and the souls of others of Jesus Christ, for he is the only medicine for that. He is the only cool, fresh water for that. He is the only eternal life for that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you that you have turned off for a while at the end of Acts all of the smaller stories so that we could see that it's the church's participation in this grand story of bearing witness to the worth, the wonder, the beauty, the kindness, the goodness, the tenderness, the power, the divinity of Jesus Christ.